0: This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy nalpith broadcasting remotely. Last week, I was on the highway for the first time since the state shut down in mid-March. I didn't miss I-91. I'm one of the lucky ones with a job and an employer that allow me to work from home during the pandemic. As Connecticut opens back up, will telecommuting continue to be an option for local workers? And later, we'll talk about public transit. Usage is down despite essential workers, including grocery store and daycare employees, still needing to get to their jobs. Will usage go up in the next few months? Or will people worry about if it's safe to board a bus or train with the coronavirus still around us? We also want to hear from you. Are you able to telecommute, and do you hope you'll be able to continue working from home? If you rely on mass transit, are you confident cities and towns will continue to invest in it if ridership remains low? As always, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I want to welcome into the show, or on the show, on Zoom today, Russell McDermott, Program Director for CT Rides. It's a free program of the State Department of Transportation to help commuters find other options to get to work or school beyond driving solo. Russell, welcome to the show.
2: Hi, Lucy. Thanks for having me.
0: So tell us more about CT Rides. We Many of us have been able to telecommute over the last three months, but when you talk about uh, the program and, and the aims of, of trying to get commuters to look at other options besides driving.
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely. So we're a statewide commuter services program. Like you said, we're a program of the Connecticut DOT, and our main goal is to reduce traffic congestion and improve air quality within the state. So by doing that, we work with different audiences. We work with commuters by helping them find the best way to get to work or school, other than driving alone. And we also work with employers um, by helping them to provide customized worksite solutions that helps them with their commuting and transportation challenges. Because when we're talking about commuting and transportation, it's really important to look at both sides of the coins. So you have the commuters, the employees that drive to and from work and schools and other institutions, and you have the employers. themselves, who's the gateway to those employees. Hmm.
0: Can you give me an idea before the pandemic, how many state residents or employers um, were teleworking?
2: So um, in Connecticut, uh, prior to the pandemic, we were a little bit above the national average. So you had about 5.6% of um, people in Connecticut were actually uh, teleworking. And the national average, I think, is closer to 5.34. But Prior to that, there was a pretty steady increase in the popularity with teleworking. I mean, just in the past, I think, 15 or so years, it's grown over 170%, which is a massive number when you you put it in context and and think about the scale of it. So teleworking was definitely on the rise prior to COVID-19.
0: Mm. I want to bring into the conversation now on the phone David Lewis. He's CEO of Operations, Inc., which is a statewide human resources consulting firm. Uh, David, welcome to our show.
1: Thank you, Lucy. Good to be here.
0: So tell us about uh, your company, Operations, Inc. And I should mention before we we talk more that uh, Connecticut Public is our parent uh, company and our HR department has actually a contract with Operations, Inc. Uh, Now that we've gotten that out of the way, uh, tell us more about Operations, Inc. and how you've embraced teleworking even prior to this pandemic?
1: Sure. So we started in 2001 in the home office I'm sitting in right now, and the we was just me. Um, And my um, foray into the consulting business was preceded by a series of employment relationships that allowed me to work remotely. And so when I opened the company back then, um, it was something that I knew uh, I was comfortable with. And I embraced and grew the business on the basis of using a team of remote people, which helped me keep my costs down for the first several years mm-hmm. and didn't put us into a formal office until five years later. And so now, you know, in our 20th year, we've been a very strong voice in the area of managing remote work and helping our clients navigate that. And it certainly has become very handy given everything that people have been forced into as a result of the COVID-19 outbreak. Mm.
0: When you mentioned keeping costs down, so you not having to rent office space or figuring out where your employees will be uh, parking when they're working, David?
1: Yeah, I, you know, it's it started off with, you know, just having a large enough home where I actually was able to have a few employees come here and work in the home office with me. But technology is as such where, you know, it's not just recent, it's been for a while that the combination of laptop computing and internet access um, and even voice over IP telephones makes it very easy for businesses to be able to operate on a remote level. And where there are a lot of companies that adopted that approach years ago, many of them uh, were forced into it for the first time in the last three, four months and have come to realize that this is not nearly as difficult uh, as uh, they anticipated, and more importantly, uh, that their employees are embracing it in a very significant way.
0: And like many other uh, office workers around the state, when the pandemic hit, your workforce, was were you able to easily uh, again transition to all of your staff working remotely?
1: Yeah, this was um, probably the simplest of all of the companies we're working with and interacting with. We had the easiest time of making this transition because, you know, probably 60% of, my, of our staff works at one um, time or another from home. So moving the other 40% into remote work was not all that difficult. Um, and, you know, we've continued to maintain an effective and efficient and a productive environment even though we're not physically putting ourselves in our corporate headquarters in Norwalk each day as we normally would have.
0: You're hearing on the phone, David Lewis, CEO of Operations, Inc., a statewide human resources consulting firm. Also with us on Zoom is Russell McDermott, program director for CT Rides. As we talk about the future of work today, uh, will telecommuting continue even after this pandemic is over? We also want to hear about your experience transitioning to telecommuting, if you were able to do so with your job. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, David, I mentioned, again, you are helping other companies figure out uh, how to do Uh, this teleworking, telecommuting, and so I'm just wondering what kind of questions uh, you got from uh, companies that had to shift uh, that weren't like Operations, Inc., where they didn't have a majority of staff uh, teleworking or telecommuting.
1: Yeah, so the challenges started certainly with things that no one who's done telecommuting and done it effectively ever anticipated, which was just how to be productive when you're home and you're not home alone, but instead you're home with your kids. And with your spouse or your significant other or with your roommates. So, you know, the mindset that we really tried to get our clients to focus on um, sort of pivoted to a 12 for eight approach. Ask your employees to focus on a 12 hour window of time during the course of a given day to achieve eight hours worth of work. And that really seemed to resonate and be effective because what it meant was that you were essentially telling the employee who's parenting and, and homeschooling two kids, that it's okay to take off a half an hour between 10.30 and 11 and help their kids. It's okay to take an hour off to give them lunch and to and play outside with them and to sort of have better balance. The stress associated with this experience has been in many cases unbearable and something no one ever anticipated. But when you add into it the idea of trying to juggle, this has been truly the meaning of work-life balance. And so the clients that embraced that approach early were the ones that really earned a lot of respect from their employees and didn't see much in the way of a drop of productivity out of their teams despite the circumstances we all found ourselves in.
0: Hmm. Russell, I'm wondering if you could chime in as well, because we've been working as a program director for CT Rides. What did you hear from employers that had to make this switch?
2: Well, like like David said, um, you know, I, I think the biggest transition for companies was just the the scope of what was going on and having to you know transition their entire organizations in, in many cases to to having to work from from home remotely. And then on top of that, when you look at the stress that their employees have with um, you know, in in essence, most people having two jobs from going from you know just working, you know, doing your regular job and now being being parents or or in some cases dependent care. So you know, companies were really just trying to figure out how how can I do this? Even companies who had existed remote work programs. Um, they were having trouble scaling up, just again due to the size and the complexity, whether it's from a from a policy or agreement standpoint, or from a technology standpoint. So it was just trying to figure out how can we do this effectively and efficiently. And one of the things that we've been telling to companies is really to use this as a as a consider look at this like a pilot program you know use it to examine your existing remote work policy adjust where needed and most importantly is be understanding again there are going to be challenges when you're doing this especially on the scope and the scale where, where, where that companies are having to to look at this now but be understanding with your employees um you know Life is going to happen again. This is not an ideal, ideal scenario, and I think the companies who go into that with that "oh um, work on the best practices like communication skills between the managers and employers. They're starting to find their in. and like David said, I think maintain or, in some cases, increase that level of productivity that they were that they were seeing prior to this.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, David, I wanted to ask uh, of the employers that uh, you con- that have a contract with your company, uh, was there some feedback from bosses who were worried about uh, that productivity? Uh, because again, they're not able to see their employees. They were and obviously they, they don't want their employees on the computer eight hours, hours a day straight, but at the same time, worried about you know, what this means in terms of getting the job done.
1: And so you make a great point, Lucy, in that, you know, before COVID-19, when we were dealing with companies who were looking to start a remote work program or who were trying to figure out why the program they had in place was not working for them, the one thing that we'd always find is that managers could just not get comfortable with the idea of managing from a distance. Uh, and, you know, think about who we, um in that circumstance before COVID-19, when we had an option of who to allow to work from home, who we would pick. We'd pick people that were responsible, that demonstrated the ability to operate independently, that were self-driven, that didn't need micromanagement. And yet so many companies send people like that home And forget all of those qualities seemingly overnight and start getting paranoid about the idea that the person, when they're not responding immediately to my email or to my instant message, must be watching soap operas or doing their laundry or playing with their kids or cooking dinner early, that they're not productive. And so that's one of the biggest concerns we try to get ahead of with clients is to make them um, first reminded of who they usually have selected when it's been their choice, but getting past that now since COVID-19, focus on how to manage from a metrics perspective, focus on how to judge the performance of the individual, not just based on what you're seeing in front of you, but what you're getting as far as output is concerned. And then to pivot to your other point, you know, major concern about how people really need training themselves on how to unplug, that the employee themselves you know, their desk, per se, may very well also be their kitchen table. And we're not used to folding up our office and putting it somewhere else in another place in our house so we can now return to our house being our house. We're work, You know, we're, we're We're living at work right now, um, and, and that's the problem is that companies have to also help their employees find the right balance where, yeah, it's great you're working 50 or 60 hours a week where you were working 35 before, but that's a recipe for disaster as well.
0: Mm. Uh, But when we talk also about helping employees work uh, effectively uh, from home, uh, David, uh, issues that employers ran into where maybe not everyone has the, uh, as you mentioned, they don't have the the spare room to make an office. They might be working at the kitchen table or maybe they have roommates or they have issues with internet connectivity and having to work through some of that with their employees.
1: Yeah, I, I think that what we've learned through this process is that All home offices are not made or created equal. Uh, And in many cases, um, people have found out that they don't have a desk height surface to work at, that they never really thought about ergonomics or about having a chair with arms and how some of the components that we take for granted that are present in an office space it's not just about having an Internet connection and a laptop computer and a cell phone. It's much more than that. So it's going to have a significant lasting impact, in my opinion, on how people even just look at home shopping and how we look at how our homes are laid out. And I think where, you know, I grew up where the, the extra bedroom in a house was that just that. It was the guest room. Um, now that room is going to be more identified and identifiable as the location for a home office. Or you'll hear a home office location be referenced as a multiple possible places. But remember, we didn't have time to plan for this. And a lot of people, you know, it's one thing to sit at your kitchen counter and throw your laptop there and, you know, read emails for a couple of hours. It's an entirely different scenario when you're sitting there for 10 hours a day and trying to be productive and healthy in the process.
0: Uh, again, you can join our conversation. We want to hear how your telecommuting experience uh, has been over the last uh, several months. The number 8887209677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Uh, what about company culture? Because you're not able, I, mean, I think most people would say that they're tired of having their Zoom meetings or Microsoft uh, uh, meetings where they're doing conferencing uh, during the day. And it does it's not the same thing as when you're in an office space and you're just working off ideas each other and there's that camaraderie among staff I mean how do you work through that David
1: it's really tough Um, and I think what you're gonna see is you know so so companies have done everything they possibly can to leverage all of this video technology Um, so much so that I would argue it's made a lot of our telephones obsolete because I'm more used to now talking to people by looking at a camera on my computer versus doing so picking up the phone That's a good start, and I think companies are going to look for ways to leverage that. But I think what we're going to see is you're going to see a big push on the tech side with all the firms that are players within this video conferencing space, those that are wannabe players who are going to try and figure out how to make more of the groups type of arrangement and connectivity something that's a part of our, our the way we communicate on a remote level. I, I, I have my doubts and my concerns and maybe that's just showing my age because <laughs> it's very much new and it feels a little bit um, too foreign to try and figure out how I take what happens around a water cooler or over the wall of a cubicle, or in the hallway in a casual conversation that generates some great ideas and insight, how do I convert that somehow into something that's gonna happen on my computer screen and through a set of headphones? I don't know. It feels very difficult, but I will tell you, we're gonna, we're gonna see more tools in that direction because in the battle between the desire for companies to have a productive culture replicated on the remote level, Versus the battle for employees to maintain this remote work relationship, the remote workers are going to win this hands down. Companies are going to have to figure out how to make the culture come through the computer screen um, and come through the headphones versus saying this isn't going to work. We need you all back here.
0: Mm. Uh, Nancy on Twitter asks, "What about the additional expenses for employees working at home? Daytime AC or heating costs, printer paper, electricity bills? Will that be something that employers, David, have to consider in terms of of reimbursing uh, staff who are working more from home?"
1: Yeah, it's a great point. It's you know, it, it you've got a lot of factors that now um, employers are going to have to consider. Um, I I would venture a guess that. Um, if it hasn't already started to pop up, and, I, and it has for some companies, but it's not widespread yet, companies are going to go ahead and provide some level of a stipend to their employees for remote work. But, you know, that's a big step, and it it may have, you know, ramifications around things like insurance that companies are going to have to explore and think through. So, you know, I, I work at home, um, and I work at home even one day a week, let alone five days a week. You know, what happens if I'm not, you know, sitting in a chair that's ergonomically correct and I wind up with a back or a neck injury or carpal tunnel? If I'm also being given money for that setup, does that um, essentially translate into more liability ownership by the employer? That's a concern but i think it's a great point i know my electric bill is much higher right now and it's going to be much higher this summer because normally i'd have my air conditioning off or mostly off throughout the day and now working from home it's going to be on the entire time so this is a big factor that businesses are going to have to consider they'll still save a lot of money long term because they won't have as much um, square footage that they're going to need to Mm -hmm. um, have going forward but this is a factor
0: I want to thank David Lewis for joining us here on Where We Live. Again, he's CEO of Operations, Inc., a statewide human resources consulting firm. Uh, David, before we go, now that Connecticut's already in uh, phase two or soon will be, are you hearing from more employers that want to continue with telecommuting?
1: I am. um, and, And candidly, in many cases right now, it's because of two factors. One, because their employees seem to like it and are reluctant to do a public commute. Um, and, And then the second factor, which is significant that I've been talking a lot about very publicly, is that the reopen Connecticut program that's been issued by the state has some significant gaps in it that doesn't make it safe in the eyes of a lot of business owners to bring their employees back. And until they fill those gaps, a lot of companies are going to continue to operate remotely, at least through the summer, until those safety gaps are closed.
0: Briefly, can you tell us what some of those gaps are? So the the biggest
1: concern is that the state didn't put any onus on landlords and building management companies to meet certain standards associated with safety. And my big pet peeve is the bathrooms. Bathrooms are not space that I control as a tenant; the landlord does. And there are no standards in the reopen Connecticut program that specifically call for things like social distancing in a bathroom or posting of signs to remind people of certain types of protocols for safety. And that area, to me, is the area that my employees are most easily going to get exposed to COVID-19 by others. And yet that area is not being addressed for reasons that are just unclear to me and other business leaders in the Reopen Connecticut plan. And the second piece is there's no clear path for how a building, an entire building, would get notified in the event somebody tests positive for COVID-19. And if I'm bringing my employees through a lobby, an elevator, a stairwell, and those same bathrooms, in contact with other employees from other companies, I should have the assurance that if somebody tests positive that's been in the building, will be notified so we can alert our employees and have them have a safe go-forward plan. That, too, is not being committed to by the state. And I am fighting very um, fervently with the administration in an effort to get them to correct those gaps.
0: Mm. Well, we hope to bring those up with Governor Lamont. We've been trying to have the governor on uh, frequently here on where we live. Uh, David Lewis, thank you for bringing up those points with us here on the show. My pleasure. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. On Zoom with us is Russell McDermott. He's going to stay with us. He's program director for CT Rides. Again, it's a free program of the State Department of Transportation to help commuters find other options beyond driving solo to get to work or school. Uh, Coming up, the number of drivers and ridership across all modes of transportation have dropped dramatically with stay-at-home orders. Will Connecticut, beginning with Connecticut, beginning to reopen, what will the new commute look like? We're going to talk more about that. We want to hear from you also So their emissions have gone down. What does that mean uh, for the future in terms of encouraging uh, more bicycling and other ways of getting around our state? Join the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy nall We're talking about telecommuting today after so many workers in Connecticut and nationwide shifted to working from home when the pandemic began. Now, as Connecticut and other states open back up, will more companies continue to offer telecommuting to its staff? And what are the advantages and disadvantages to remote work? Is this something you want to see continue? Join the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Russell McDermott is with us on Zoom. He's Program Director for CT Rides. Uh, One of the goals of CT Rides, Russell, is to continue to reduce emissions while getting, uh, helping employees get back to work and promoting telework policies. I'm just wondering what has been the impact on shared transit options and what does that mean for the future?
2: Well, I think while we've seen a you know telework and having an, a, a boom lately, uh, unfortunately, the the there's been a corresponding decline in the number of people using using public transportation. And when we start talking about the environment and and congestion mitigation, I mean that's a that's a, a very tough pill for us to swallow. Um, you know, we need to be aware of the fact that the current infrastructure, we need public transit. It's mm-hmm. it's not a matter of, of whether, you know, what the future will look like with or without it, but public transportation is something we need. Our, our infrastructure simply just cannot support all of the, all of those people who are currently using public transit or used it before to, to shift to a, mm-hmm. a, a drive alone commute. So um, what the future looks like, I, I think that's a, you know, that's a million dollar question right now. But I think it's important for us to keep pushing for these other options, like, you know, continuing to telework whenever, whenever applicable. We need to make sure that in order for people to return to public transit, that they feel safe. And I think once they start to feel safe, then we'll start to see that increase again in in the usage of public transportation, because especially here in Connecticut, we had a really good story to tell prior to COVID-19. We had some really great services come online in, in the in the past few years, such as the CT Fast Track, mm-hmm. the new CT Rail Hartford line, and we were seeing year over year uh, ridership increases on, on both services. So we know that we have a proof of concept. We have a model that works. We've, we've shown the state that if you build it, people will ride it. So, you know, we, I, I think it's incumbent on in us to make sure that we continue to do the, the, the safety things that we've been doing on transit to let people know when it is safe that they, that they can return.
0: When we talk about the different uh, modes of transportation, often uh, people focus on train commuters, uh, many of them holding white collar jobs. When we think about people who've been using CT Fast Track or even the city buses around the state, uh, Russell, these bus commuters have less options. They may not have a car, but they may have an essential job they need to get to.
2: Exactly. So, so now we're talking about equity. Um, when we are talking about transportation and public transportation in particular, one of the things we're t- we should also look at it or frame the conversation around is our economy as well. Um, public transportation is the backbone of our economy. And now that we're seeing, a, we're talking about a lot of the, um, the folks who may be dependent on, the, on those bus services to get to work. A lot of those people are now the essential workers that are going to the, the, the stores and the, and the places that are reopening and keeping Connecticut going. So they, a lot of them really don't have any other option except for the, the buses and, and some of the trains and some of those instances. So it's incumbent on us to make sure that we keep those services available for these people Um, not only so they can get back and forth to work, but again, so we can keep our economy going. So I think we really need to start looking at how we have this conversation. And when we're talking about transportation and public transportation, we're also talking about our economy and and our future as well.
0: You can join our conversation on where we live. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Anthony's calling in from Hartford. Anthony, you're on the show.
2: Hello. Hello. Um, My comment was uh,
1: kind of a question, uh, is, you know, seeing how effective uh, telecommuting can be at reducing congestion, I'm I'm very interested in seeing uh, Connecticut DOT and the state legislators and the governor uh, work to cancel the plans to expand both 84 and 95 at the state's boundaries. Um, Over a third of the state's greenhouse gas emissions are from transportation, and those are both tremendously expensive projects. So I'd, I'd love to hear uh, thoughts on that um, as we think about what our future looks like after this uh, very informative dis- disruption. Mm.
0: Thank you, Anthony, for your call. Russell, uh, tell us more about uh, how the, the Connecticut DOT, again, CT Rides is part of the Connecticut DOT, but ways to think about uh, easing congestion, improving, and encouraging more mass transit options.
2: Well, you know, you know, I think when we well, – that was a great comment from the caller. I think when we look at the the issue and we're talking about transportation, we need to have a holistic view of it. So we can't just look at it from a, a construction standpoint or even just a mm-hmm. public transportation standpoint. We have to take into all the modes into consideration. So, you know, drive alone is obviously the, the way most people commute to and from work. But then you have um, public transit, the bus and rail. But you also have bike in, walk in – uh, teleworking carpool vanpooling. you know teleworking is getting a, a big chunk of that tension right now but when we put that in context only about, about 5.5% of people telework prior to this. Now, obviously that percentage has increased significantly since COVID-19, but I think we need to take a more universal approach. I think that's what the DOT is doing, especially here at the CT Rides program, where we're not just focusing on on public transit because in many places across the state, people just don't have access to public transit. Mm-hmm. So in order, in order for us to reach those folks and appeal to them, we have to find solutions that work work for people and work for companies. So I'd tell everyone that this is a this is a full view that we need to take. You know, obviously we we need roads, we need the highways, the bridges, the expansions. I'm sure the DOT has done a lot of work, a, a lot of studies to to look on the trade-offs with those things. So that's definitely an important um Component, but so is again public transit the investment in that that mm-hmm. we've seen with the again the Fast Track and the Hartford Line, which are two overwhelmingly success stories that Connecticut has. Um, and we have a comprehensive carpool vanpool program as well in the state. So again, I, I encourage people to really look in the the totality of of, of all of the modes mm-hmm. and options.
0: You're hearing Russell McDermott here on Where We Live, Program Director for CT Rides. Joining the conversation now, also on Zoom, is David Dudley. He's editor at CityLab. David, welcome back to the show.
3: Hi, Guy. Thanks for having me.
0: So we were talking with Russell about how ridership has uh, decreased uh, in our state. Uh, Metro North line, 95 percent drop since March 9th. Uh, The Hartford line, an 88 percent drop. Uh, Bus ridership has declined by about half. When we look around the country, uh, David, uh, are these stats in Connecticut also reflective around uh, other states in our nation?
3: Uh, Absolutely. Uh, What we saw in in April as as these coronavirus lockdowns uh, uh, took, took effect was just this huge uh, plummeting of ridership numbers uh, across across the country. Uh, uh, Seattle, New York City, uh, Washington, DC, cities that, that have pretty robust transit ridership in general, uh, pre-coronavirus uh, had you know, 60, 70, 80% uh, drops. And, uh, you know, that those, those numbers are ticking up now, but uh, most people in the field think that we're looking at uh, at least a year, perhaps, before you are back to where you used to be.
0: Mm-hmm. We were talking about the equity issue a little bit earlier. I'm just wondering if you can talk through uh, what we're seeing in especially uh, cities across our country in terms of making sure that uh, not only buses and trains uh, continue to run, but that people feel that it's safe to get to work, David.
3: Sure. Uh, you know, it, it's uh, it, it's a it's an anxious time. Uh, we mm-hmm. saw uh so much fear associated with, with uh, riding public transit uh, during sort of the height of the, of the coronavirus. Uh, you had a situation in New York's MTA where uh, a large number of uh, people who worked for the MTA were, were getting sick, were getting infected, and um, didn't have uh, enough protective equipment. And um, it was a very anxious time. And I think a lot of people will remain uh, somewhat fearful of getting back on trains and buses. Um, uh, it's important to note that, that if you look internationally, if you look at uh, cities in Asia and Europe that have very strong public transit ridership, uh, and where also there was uh, sort of a, a couple weeks of, uh, or months of advance uh, experience with COVID-19, you, we're not seeing huge clusters of infections associated with transit ridership. Uh, there's a lot of fear about that. But if you look at uh, the Tokyo system, and systems in Seoul, uh, there was uh, some, some, some data out of France uh, uh, looking at, at, at Paris's metro. They're just not seeing that, that transit and riding buses and subways contributed hugely uh, to uh, infections. Uh, what we're mm-hmm. seeing is, is workplaces, uh, 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 congregate living, you know, places where you're in lo- large uh, groups of people in contact with each other for long periods of time. And that, you don't see that on transit. Assuming everyone is wearing your mask, and that's sort of the, yes. that's kind of the key thing is compulsory mask usage from from now on mm-hmm. on public transit.
0: You mentioned Asia in Japan. Isn't it been fairly common that people wear face masks on transit? Is that part of it, or it's not? Uh, people in, in the United States, some areas, people struggle with having to wear a mask or they don't want to wear a mask. But in other places like Japan, that's pretty common, right?
3: Yeah, it is. And uh, and and prior to this you know, coronavirus uh, I- incident. You know, uh, uh, there, there, with, with SARS and MERS and there, there were, have been other uh, 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 epidemics and other infectious disease outbreaks in Asia in the last 10, 20 years. So there is just more of a, a culture of accepting that it is, uh, it, is, it is prudent to wear a mask in, in an enclosed space or in public uh, whether or not you're feeling symptomatic. And it took uh, Americans a long time and it's sort of a work in progress, but it's taking us a long time to sort of get that through our heads that that's effective. And there was, you know, there was mixed messaging from the CDC and so forth. You didn't see that in 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 Asia. So right now, if you're on uh, a subway train in in an Asian city, you're you're wearing a mask, and it, it would be it would be very unusual uh, to see someone who wasn't who's unmasked. The they also have other sort of uh, 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 scanning and, and temperature checks and so forth. They were just sort of a little bit more on the ball in terms of. Of being cognizant of the threat uh, that that uh, that that poses, uh, but a lot of this is pretty easy to adopt. Uh, it's not it's not rocket science, and it's something that, mm-hmm. that Americans can and will have to get used to.
0: When we look at these huge drops in ridership, that impacts fare revenue, as so I guess I'm wondering how cities and states are going to be able to keep this essential public service running, especially for uh, people, again, especially bus riders who may not have a car and they need to get to work.
3: Absolutely. No, it's it's a huge issue, especially in uh, systems that are very reliant on fare revenue uh, for their funding, which tends to be smaller cities. Um, uh they don't have a lot of other options. They really do need to, to, um, uh, um, I'm sorry, larger cities is is the correct answer there. Uh, So like New York, uh, DC, uh, San Francisco, uh, relies heavily on on, um, money from from Fairbox pay. So um, that's a a huge uh, issue. They have to keep service up. Uh, one of the, the sort of uh, instructive uh, uh, historical things that a lot of transit advocates point to is after the Great Recession, uh, when a lot of cities were, were you know, uh, uh, facing very se- severe budget cuts, uh, a lot of, of transit agencies cut service during the recession to save money. And it really took a long, long time for that service to come back, uh, even as, as the need uh, was, was, was evident. Uh, and so you don't want to see a situation like that again, where you we cut service temporarily during coronavirus lockdowns, and then it never comes back because when you cut service and you cut frequency you're you're strictly limiting the usefulness of transit, and you're 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 making it very, very hard to get those riderships back. So a lot of advocates are saying, you know, this is a time when the states and, and the federal government need to step up with support and keep the service up because it's desperately needed. Uh, this is how uh, people are getting to getting to their essential jobs uh, in, in cities across the country. So, the, the job of, of, of transit now is is not really to make money; it's to it's mm-hmm. to sort of keep your city alive.
0: Uh, Again, you're hearing David Dudley, who's editor for CityLab here on uh, Where We Live. Also with us is Russell McDermott, program director for CT Rides. I'm wondering, uh, watching New York this week, New York City as, uh, again, I believe their phase one uh, starts up uh, now and seeing how many more commuters will be, again, riding the subways, riding the trains, because uh, in the beginning where there was a lot of uh, transmission uh, in the city of New York.
3: Yeah, you're 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 seeing uh, subway numbers ticking up again, um, and uh, I think again it's it's very critical that, that, that uh, uh, compulsory mask usage becomes a feature of, of the subway. It's sort of like you know like 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 being in an elevator or something like that in your office. You're just going to have to sort of adopt a new set of behavioral norms in order to make this feature of urban life function again.
0: Mm. Uh, Russell, I wanted to bring you back into the conversation when we think again about bus ridership, obviously the schedules were tamped down uh, during the start of this pandemic, but as the state continues to reopen, uh, there may be more uh, buses running more frequently, but not having the same capacity as before because of social distancing needing to still be followed.
2: Um, so I'm not sure exactly what the what the final plans will look like as, as uh, the start, um, you know, as we start to reopen more, but, but again, I want to go back to one point David made um, and one I've been echoing is this is, this is not just, we're not just talking about, you know, Getting people from from point A to point B, or, or public transportation being a nice to have. Again, this is an integral part of, of our economy, especially mm-hmm. here in Connecticut, um, and and making sure that these services are available to people. Now, on the flip side of that, when we also talk about the the, the health side of it, um, public transportation, I think for a number of reasons, has is really taken a beat and it's it's getting a, a bad rap when when you talk about those transmission rates, which I, I don't know that the data necessarily supports you know when, when you look at your your typical person who uses public transportation um, w- what's the real difference between them riding the bus or you know a, a traveler sitting on an airplane for for several hours or if you're going into the office and going into an elevator with several people or, or, or in a stairwell um, you know, public transportation, I, I don't think is any better or worse than any of the, the routine activities that people are going to have to start returning to. So, um, you know, I think it's important that we continue to invest in public transportation. And, um, you know, I think it's, it's going to be on the same plane as, as, as other activities that people are currently doing and will continue to do.
0: This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. I'm speaking with Russell McDermott, Program Director for CT Rides, and on Zoom also David Dudley, Editor at CityLab. After the break, we know the environment has benefited from the shutdown over the last few months because less people are driving or flying for business. But is this trend likely to continue? You can join us too. find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathaniel. Now the coronavirus is still around, so as states open back up, the federal CDC has recommended people drive solo to contain the spread of the virus. But that could lead to an increase in carbon emissions and traffic congestion, two things that had improved over the last 3 months. Uh, my guests today on Zoom, David Dudley, editor at CityLab, and Russell McDermott, program director for CT Rides. Uh, David, oh, what have we seen in other countries who may be past a uh, uh, certain phase of the pandemic that we're still in, are more people avoiding mass transit and just driving uh, in in the car by themselves?
3: Well, perhaps the best uh, examples right now are uh, for what we might be looking at is uh, cities in China, which uh, um, uh, obviously went through this well before us. And um, what we're seeing now is is uh, a couple of things, one of which is, is only about half of uh, workers in a lot of Chinese cities have actually gone back to going to the office, uh, even at this rate, even though uh, they've been they've been uh, largely uh, virus-free for a while. Uh, and the other thing we saw was was sort of a little spike in traffic, uh, a lot of a lot of um, people buying cars, uh, a lot of people uh, getting back on the road as soon as possible. Um, that's something that that. Other cities are very interested in avoiding. Uh, So what we saw in in, uh, European cities like Milan and Paris and so forth, a lot of aggressive efforts to open up streets for bicycles uh, and uh, bike commuting and so forth to to try to kind of get in front of the idea that there's going to be a massive surge in vehicle traffic uh, once people get back to work. Uh, so we're seeing a little bit of that in, in American cities uh, in New York and Oakland and Seattle have, have uh, opened up a lot of streets and uh, what are called slow streets uh, or open streets where they're, they're encouraging more people to, to, to walk and bike uh, as, as sort of a commuting alternative and use this sort of lull in traffic in a, in a kind of a, a progressive way to, to try to kind of redraw the, the kind of the, the, the functionality of the urban street grid and make make it so that so that not everybody does have to drive along
0: We heard from Kate on Twitter, who says she wants to see incentives and infrastructure to support bike commuting. Let's use this opportunity to cut down on single occupancy vehicles on the road. Uh, Russell McDermott, I'll go back to you again, congestion on Connecticut highways dropped dramatically. Now it's starting uh, to creep back up. Are you worried that uh, with the pandemic and with reopening that we'll see people's driving behavior change and go back to old habits?
2: Uh, yeah, I'm I'm extremely worried that we're going to see an uptick in the in the drive-alone rates. Um, you know, I think there's going to be a, a greater and a faster adoption of things like telework, and I think we're going to see a um, you know the, the commuting patterns for for commuters change where instead of going into the office five day the five days a week maybe they're teleworking two days going in three days or some mix with transit but yes I, I do think we are going to see um, a, an a, an increase in drive alone rates um, you know unfortunately but uh, again as I think eventually things will start to balance out again we'll see some of that decrease with the increase in teleworking. I think people are going to start coming back to, to transit. The the big question is when and, and to 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 what degree. That um I, I think is a million dollar question. But um you know people who took transit before this, they saw the benefits, they they liked it, and and prior to the break, you know, I I, I keep hammering the message home off. There isn't that big of a difference between using transit and then going into your typical office building or going into your typical stairwell or or you know, even if you don't draw the comparison of people who 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 take the take an airplane. And Mm -hmm. um again, I I think something we need to acknowledge is transit carried about eighty something million people in Connecticut last fiscal year. And if you just Imagine that number and what that would look like on our highways and our roadways, and in our big cities like Stamford and and New Haven and Hartford and you know I 91 and you know I 95. The 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 congestion that would be associated with that if people were to to make that sudden shift to only driving alone. Um, again, that's just not something we can we can support. So. You know, I think we need to look at the the totality, all of the different resources. So instead of just focusing on teleworking and and public transit, we look at it Mm -hmm. as a broader spectrum where we look at things like carpools and vanpools and biking and walking. And we really need to take a universal perspective at looking at this challenge. Because currently, according to the last census data I saw, even though public transit moved you know, so many people last year, according to the data, more people traveled by, you know, different things like carpooling and vanpooling. so, again, I think we need to take a a broader, higher higher level look Mm -hmm. at this issue.
0: And David, we just have a couple of minutes left, but I wanted to ask you, uh, with this discussion and all of the issues that we've raised and people have been discussing over the last few months, does it change the way our cities uh, will be structured in the future, uh, potentially impacting where people choose to live?
3: Well, that's, a, that's another huge question. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, there, there are kind of two scenarios, and, and I think one of which is that we'll see a, a, a rejuvenation of the idea that it is important to live closer to your job. Uh, that is something that uh, uh, you're, you're seeing uh, in a lot of European cities making a case for what's called a 15-minute city where you can get to your job and your doctor's office and your grocery store and all the sort of the essentials of life within 15 minutes of, of walking or biking—that uh, is a very kind of you know kind of a, a very kind of old school European model of, of of urban living that a lot of Americans don't really experience because we we live in, in uh, suburbs that tend to be pretty auto centric and they tend to be pretty sprawling and you have to kind of drive hither and yon to to get to all your stuff, so. As, as we, we kind of recalibrated our lives during these lockdowns, a lot of people sort of became acutely aware of just what was in, in their immediate surroundings. You know, they're stuck at home all day, they're taking walks, And, uh, you know, I, I think there's a scenario that says there'll be a lot of, of uh, more appetite for the idea that, hey, maybe, maybe my, it would be a lot easier if I just lived closer to my job.
0: Uh, we'll have yeah. to leave it there, uh, David Dudley. Thank you, editor at City Lab on Zoom today. Also, Russell McDermott, program cool. director for CT Rides. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.